Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of the Banquet Hall podcast. I am blessed to be joined with the one, the only, the queen of South Central Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Sticks College, all that, the one and only Jazlyn Livingston. Uh, we have a great episode in store for you later. And for all of our new listeners, make sure you follow us at Banquet Hall Pod on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, all that. Uh, you can catch this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, make sure if you tune on Spotify or YouTube, then check out the video so you can see our beautiful black smiling faces throughout the podcast. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get this podcast started. It's been a long time coming. I know our listeners are very excited to hear from you. So without further ado, Miss Jasmine Livingston, how are you this lovely Sunday evening? Yes, thank you so very much. King Kyler, Prince Kyler of the South of the Central. Um, thank you for the invitation um, to be here with you this Sunday evening. It has been a long time coming. We have been trying to make this happen, have this conversation um, for some time now. And I'm excited that our timing has aligned and um, we are here now. And yeah, I'm very grateful um, and we'll get into it. But first and foremost, I'm very grateful for you, Kyler, um, for many reasons. Um, incredibly proud of you and your journey. And um, it's been uh, just beautiful being a witness you trying to make me cry within the first 30 seconds of the damn podcast. I'm hey, this is nothing new. I tell you like it is. I speak from my heart, okay? <laughs> but and you're very seriously. much appreciated. No, seriously. Um, and I'm doing good. I'm doing good tonight, feeling good. I um again, I'm excited. Very excited. Uh, but we have been just chopping it up for the last 30 minutes before we even started recording. So I feel like we already did like half the podcast, but none of it got recorded. So we're going to have to let the listeners in a little bit. So I think the I usually try to start with some type of little icebreaker to kind of ease us into the conversation. And I'm going to put you on the spot, which I'm, I'm, I do a really great job on. Don't worry, it's not going to be that bad of putting you on the spot. Uh, but <laughs> uh, you just wait. Um, but... <laughs> Before we got started, uh, Jazlyn enjoyed one of her favorite fruits on the podcast. And so I just want you to let the listeners know how great was the mango that you had before we started recording. I didn't know that was going to be the icebreaker question. <laughs> I know you did it. As a matter of fact, my mango was absolutely outstanding. Okay. Mango is my favorite fruit. It is my absolute favorite snack. So absolute if favorite snack, snack of all time? Absolute favorite snack. Mangoes are my absolute favorite snack. That is number one. Um, and then fruit in general is my number one. Um, and then maybe ice cream. But okay. my mango is delicious. Absolutely delicious. Okay, now I got to ask the follow-up questions. We're going to unpack this mango obsession real quick. Because um, the people got to know, like, I just feel like when you're on a podcast, like, people, you really got to break down what people are saying. So uh, the important questions, with fruit being uh, one and ice cream being two, do you like ice cream with fruits in any shape or form? Yes. 
Okay. Is mango yep. ice cream one of your favorite ice creams? It's not one of my favorite ice creams. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite ice creams. You are laugh at me because you're like, oh yeah, that's definitely an auntie's favorite. Is it butter pecan? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, butter pecan is <laughs> still my favorite ice cream. No, nah, butter pecan is goaded. Like it is a very auntie ice cream, but it's also delicious. Like I think that people will be sleep on butter pecan, but yeah. no, nah, it's good. You don't you don't gotta be ashamed of liking butter pecan. Not on this podcast. I got you. I got you. And that yep, that's my absolute favorite. I already knew he was gonna come for me. That's why I was trying to set it up. <laughs> Cause soon as I was gonna say butter pecan, he was gonna come for me. Okay. And my second favorite is strawberry cheesecake. That's okay. where that's when I would say like fruit inside of it. But I like mango ice cream too. Okay. Next up, are dried mangoes part of your mango repertoire? Or you only rock with the non-dried mangoes. I like the dried mangoes. I don't love them. I love the fresh mangoes. Dang, RIP to the dried mangoes. Catching a stray on a podcast. No, I like them. They're good. Like Trader Joe's, they're dried mangoes, delish. But, you know, it's tears to it. There's tears to it, dang. Somewhere a dried mango is listening to this podcast, just hurt because <laughs> you just like them. You don't like like them. You just like them. It's it's all good, though. It'd be like that sometimes. We like what we like. <laughs> what about the, um? like, do you put anything on your mangoes? Like, do you do like tahini on mangoes or you just like straight up mango? Uh, all of the above but all of the above if, yep if i have tahim i will certainly sprinkle some on um i'm also not complaining if it's just just as is but i do like tahim i think some of it is also you know like growing up in la mm -hmm. and the fruit stand or on the corner um yeah like a lot of our brown community you know i think there was a way of um you know, there was something built in that um, mm -hmm. in, in black and brown communities too. And uh, yeah, I used to love the fruit truck. Absolutely. So you got me wanting some fresh mango now. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't even be eating mangoes like that, but just something about like having to sit on, chop it up with you while eating a fresh mango. And now we talking about mangoes and I just want a mango. Like I'm about to go to the store after this. You should. I, I endorse that. I encourage that. We have the queen's approval. Awesome. Um, last question. When you go to Jamba Juice or other fruit places, do you have to get a mango smoothie? Like, is mango a go-go your, your go-to drink? It's not my go-to. Wow. I feel like you, you let a mango down. You don't, you don't, you're not I, a mango a go-go person? No, I do like mango a go-go. So anytime I get it or someone bought it from me, I, I love it. I love it. You know, like I said, I like what I like. And I do like, I, I love mangoes in my smoothie. Like mm. whatever else is in it, I really do love mangoes in this smoothie. I also like it by itself, but I like, um, I don't know if you ever had white gummy. That sugary ass smoothie. It's good. It's good. I think it's because like it was one of my first, the first ones I've gotten. So I think ever since then, like middle school, it's been, mm. it's been my go-to, but I, I've tried other ones. Awesome. Well, thank you for participating in the first ever Mango Corner of the Banquet Hall podcast. 
Uh, I think this podcast episode we call Jazlyn and the Mango Tree. Uh, <laughs> Not Jazlyn the Mango Tree. I feel like every podcast, I try to bring something out of the podcast where it's like, you didn't turn on this podcast to hear about you talk about mangoes. People probably do. It's like, ooh, Jazzy on a podcast. Let's see what she's talking about. We're going to be talking about leadership. We could talk about the prison system. And then we started a podcast about mangoes. About mangoes. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. Thank y'all for tuning in to this mango discussion. Uh, we'll catch y'all next episode. Nah. Um, but I think it's important to paint a full picture because maybe somebody's listening like, hey, I didn't know Jazzy liked mangoes like that. Well, fun fact. It's my favorite snack. And now they know. <laughs> fun fact is her favorite snack. You sound like a poet. You should write a book or something, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> I am about to play with you, Kyla. You can you starting early too. <laughs> I am starting early. I've been looking forward to this podcast for a minute. Like I think we alluded to it, but originally we were supposed to record this a month ago, but I think that the universe had other plans for when the timing was right, and here we are this evening, and this is the right time for the podcast to happen, so I'm just excited to share virtual space with you. I think that we have a lot of conversations just in general that could all be podcasts. Like I feel like every time like you either randomly call me or we randomly interact, it ends up somewhere deep, like just... It's like, oh, how's your day going? And all of a sudden we talk about like, you know, what does love really mean? Like, <laughs> I love it. We, ha we have a lot of stuff to get to on this podcast. I'm excited. What was you going to say? No, I'm excited. And you're so right. I think the last call we had, you was like, dang, I should have recorded that. <laughs> Man, because it just be just wisdom. Because anybody listening to this podcast who knows you will know that once you get on the Jazzlyn soapbox, it's like... It's like, damn, like we was just chilling, but all of a sudden, like, I want to go dismantle like capitalism right now. Like, let where, where do we start today? Cause yeah. you just you you galvanize the troops mid-sentence, you affirm everybody. You just got you got the whole package where people would just be like, you know, I I can't do this today. I can't. Let's let's get it. And that's why you're on this podcast. Oh wow. I hope I can live up to all of that. <laughs> Oh, you absolutely will. Consistently, consistently, consistently. Um, because truthfully, and and I feel like we can take it wherever. Um, but there's just so much that um I learned just in the power of community and um yeah, finding a real core belief that is possible. Whatever that is, um, I think, I know, um, you know, you and I met at UCSD at a very important and pivotal time in both of our lives um, at at our the, at UC San Diego, and then also in our country at large. Like, yeah, it was a lot that we were grappling with. Um, as young people, young adults, some of us not even feeling like adults, but I guess they say I was a kid. 18, and you, yeah, your freshman year, you was you were not even on the you wasn't even eighteen yet. <laughs> so why don't we go ahead and start there? Usually, I, I start with asking where you're from, but we'll get there. We'll come back to that. What is your recollection of how we met, slash when we met? Like, let's let's paint the picture for people. When did when did we meet? How did we meet? 
from what you remember and I'll fill in with my memory as we go yeah that's a great question um so we met this was I want to say 2013 mm-hmm. um fall of 2013 yeah it was fall of 2013 it was my third year of college and you were starting your first year at UCSD um we had a mutual friend Brilan mm-hmm. shout out to B Scoops yeah, B Scoops. Yeah, B Scoops was the connector. Yep. Yeah, Brilan was the connector. And um, me and Brilan, um, we also lived together. We were best friends mm-hmm. in college. And we also, um, yeah, we lived together. And you came over. She had invited you over. This is welcome week. Yeah, this is yeah. day two of my UCSD experience. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. And I think you were sitting on the couch when I came in. Yep. Um, just in my introvert bubble. Yes. <laughs> you were not talking at all. You was chilling. But you know, it was interesting. What I remember like feeling, there was a groundedness about you, which makes sense. Makes sense because you're a Taurus. But yeah, like yeah. there was, yeah, it's like, you could feel a sense of groundedness in you. So shout out to Taurus for that energy. Um, but I remember that you you had even, even though you was the youngest person in the room, there was just a great deal of character, wisdom, emotional intelligence. Um, it's an honor. I'm serious. Like seriously, there was something. Um, yeah, that that I remember. That was the feeling that I remember. Mm. Um, you know, like when you have first impressions of people, and there's different things that you feel about them or that what they'll leave with you. But that was something that you know was there, and I think it makes sense though because throughout our career, our our um, college career together, you are a very grounded friend in my life, brother, um, resident, um, (laughs) board member. All that. All the things. So, um, yeah, I was really, I'm grateful that that's how we met. And I met you the second day you started UCSD. Yeah, it's just wild to think back on because uh, some of the listeners know, but we alluded to, I started college at 17. So I was literally an infant in a room of actual adults. Um, <laughs> but literally, like, because Brilan's actually the mutual friend of, or she related to them. I don't know. But uh, there's these twin girls, Christina and Kayla Goosby, who went to my middle school. And Brilan knows them. And somehow we got connected before I started at UCSD. And it took about 24 hours in the dorms where I was like, hey, uh, what, what y'all doing over there in six? Like, how do I get there? Like, I, I need friends. Like, I'm, you know, sweet base ain't really cutting it right now. And so I went over there. Well, I think first, me, Brilan, and Salam, I think we, like, took the bus, like, Target or something. I'm like, oh, I'm just going on this adventure with some strangers. Like, I don't know where the hell I'm ended up. Then I just ended up at your apartment. And then okay. it's like, oh, this is Jazzy. She's the RA and Ruby. I was like, RA? Like, oh, God. Like, <laughs> And who would have thought from the RA in this random apartment I'm at to where we are today, 
Um, but I, I do remember that day because I, I mentioned I was on the couch just quiet as hell because y'all was all talking. Y'all obviously all know each other. I'm just this freshman just trying to mind my place, um, <laughs> not not take up too much but space. Find your way. Yeah, just trying to, because like I said, it's day two on campus. I'm, I don't even know what I'm about to get into. I have no idea. And what I think it's kind of bittersweet because day two, I'm in this room surrounded by nothing but Black women. And then classes start two days later, and it's <laughs> not the case, though. No. You are not in those kind of spaces any longer. No, <laughs> like, not at all. It's not built in. It was not a natural environment. It was something that, you know, we had to be very intentional about creating. Um, I'm curious. That, I'm, I'm curious to know, I guess, your first impression then. If you're like, oh, yeah, this is the RA. I feel like it's so interesting um, hearing people's first impression of me, and I've gotten several um, that don't match don't that doesn't match me naturally. So it's funny to hear. I all I remember you was busy. You was running in from something. Probably was about to go to something else. But I don't know. It felt like this very like just just mystery. It's like oh, this is the RA's room because you had like the room in the front of the apartment. And it's like, oh, who's this Jazlyn person? Like, I don't know. Because I'm 17 in her college. I'm like, I don't know. Is the is the RA about to be mad that I'm in here? Like, is I don't know. Like, I don't know what college is. I'm first gen and shit. I came from Catholic right. school. This is all brand new to me. I have no idea what's going on. Um, I was just trying not to rock the boat. I was like, I'm going to just exist in whatever y'all doing. If we become cool, we become cool. Uh, I don't necessarily think I was, like, intimidated by anybody. But it was just a sense of, like, you're this third year college student. Like you're like a superstar to me. I'm uh, a, I'm a first year. Like this is like wow. Also felt kind of cool though because it's like damn. Like I'm just just here. Like all these upperclassmen. Yeah, all these upperclassmen, all black women. Like it was, I was like, yeah, this is cool. Like I, I could kick it here, and lo and behold, every day, oh, like y'all going back to six, come kick it with y'all, and that's that's how we survive college. And we gonna get into that a little bit later, but. Yeah, I, I have to think more about what the exact first impression. I just remember thinking about you as the RA, like you were just the RA in my mind. It's like, oh, okay, like don't fuck with her. She's the RA. No, fair. <laughs> but then we became friends real quick. <laughs> yeah, and then it's it's all written in stone from there. But in that moment, you were Jasmine the RA, and I was like, oh god, what does RA mean? Like, I don't know. Especially, I think I think part of that too is rooted in going to a Catholic school that had like a lot of rules and whatnot. So it's like, it's a very, this very authoritative person. It's like, oh, I make sure I'm on the RA's good side. Cause I know how college work, but you, you cool or whatever. We made it past the RA stage. Cool RA, okay. You are. I was, I was the cool RA. But I didn't know that. Cause. You, you, um, you learned for yourself. Yeah. I had to figure it all out. Cause that's, that's just how my life works. I, nobody I don't think there's ever a time where I'm being a somebody where I'm like okay they cool like I really got it like all right let me let, let me see let me see what it is real quick let me see how they are how they interact and and oh, okay now it's really starting back I did I sometimes feel like not a spectacle but I was just like first year student I'm 17 I'm just sitting in the living room quiet and you know whenever quiet black man in a room full of people everybody got the questions they want to know where, where did you go to school and it's like half the people in our room is from LA so we had that common ground so it's like, oh, where'd you grow up? Why'd you come to UCSD? I'm like, I just messed some of y'all. Don't ask me all these questions. 
Yeah, trying to ask all these deep questions about who I am. I don't even right. know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. None of y'all in here. And it's early enough in my college experience, so I don't know that I need the Black community to survive college either. So it's like, I don't, I don't need to talk to y'all. Like, I'm just, I'm just right. here. I'm chilling. But I'm happy that I grew beyond that. And that Matthews D1 apartment was integral to me becoming who I am today. So kudos to y'all. Shout out to y'all, the uh, the Black woman at UCSD that raised a little 17-year-old. Hey. It, was a, it was a joy. But I want to, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I didn't want to cut you off. Oh, no, you're good. I was just going to say, I want to rewind just a little bit to talk a little bit about where we are collectively from. Uh, because we've mentioned it a couple of times on the podcast. And the first question that I usually ask people is where they are from and how did that shape who you've become? What have you learned from where you grew up? So uh, you are from the greatest city on earth. Absolutely. Los Angeles. And what, and what does that mean for you? So I was born and raised in South Central Los Angeles. And uh, Los Angeles County moved around a lot, but rooted in South Central Los Angeles was my home upbringing and also where all my majority of my family still reside. And where my mom currently, she went, we moved back to um, that same region, um, but lived in Carson, Long Beach, Inglewood, Compton, um, the Valley. So definitely a LA baby all the way through, <laughs> um, but rooted in South Central Los Angeles and you know, born in the 90s, South Central had a particular conceptualization of its makeup, um, particularly for Black people, Black and Brown people, um, for young Black people too. There was a lot, there was a several, there were several facets of life that was shaping and influenced what Los Angeles in the 90s was like. Um, and so, you know, for a lot of us, we tell the stories of, you know, gang violence, mm -hmm. bloods of drugs, um, things to that degree, poverty, homelessness. But what we don't also talk about that shaped Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles specifically are the social conditioning that created those kind of symptoms. Um high rates of unemployment because there isn't, you know, jobs available and accessible to people that look like us. Um they're they're not being adequate they're not being adequate educational resources to help nurture the intellect, the, the intellectual potential of young black youth. So high rates of high school dropout shape that conditioning mm -hmm. the war on drugs shape that conditioning and the war on drugs and there's tons of documentation of how that in particular was orchestrated was actually a also war on black people in its design and its effect um community violence but in parallel with lack of community investment mm -hmm. positive community investment, um, resources that ensured that Black kids had safe places to play on at, at the playground, um, to ensure that they had accessible 
just re- not restaurants, accessible um, grocery stores, mm-hmm. quality food. We're living in food deserts, but yet is liquor stores on every single corner. It's a Popeye's and a Louisiana chicken on every single corner and a McDonald's on every single corner. But in that block radius, one food for less. And when you really think about the quality of food that's in that particular grocery store, mm-hmm. also are things to really think about and consider and recognize that food is the medicine that feeds the body, that feeds the mind. And there's many conditions in in South Central Los Angeles that really shaped and formed my life, um, my values, my conviction as I matured. Um, it inspired a deep resolve within me um, to really understand how and why. How were those conditions created? How were those conditions engineered? And why? And even more importantly, how do we change it? Because those are some of the conditions that shaped my life in the 90s. But if you look here in 2023, almost 30 years later, I was born in 93. We're dealing with those same kind of consequences. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, in some effects, even worse. Because when the war on drugs took place, it also locked up hundreds upon thousands of Black bodies currently in cages all throughout the state of California because of some of those conditions, because of some of those laws. And at the time, some of that was also war on marijuana. Mm-hmm. And yet we see in 2023, there's still individuals who have suffered lifelong disruptions of quality of life because they've been locked in cages because of just the, just the, the possession of it. And imagine the consequence of that over the years, generation that now, let's say that's that, that father that went to jail for that reason, even if let's say it's a pound yeah, and maybe they had something else that, you know, was, was low level, but now it's compounded. And now that father has to be incarcerated for six, six months to a year. Now it's a child who does not have access to her father for that father to help financially take care of that child, to emotionally and mentally nurture that child, to help develop that child. No, they're locked in a cage. Right. And there's no positive level of an engagement with that child and the resources that that man can be providing to his family, to his community. So I could talk about that all day, but those are the re- those are the things that have shaped my understanding, my resolve, my heart for really wanting to understand how do we get here, why do we get here, and how do we change it? Um, for many reasons, I have many reasons to change those conditions. We all do. Listeners, I told y'all. <laughs> There you like, go. Let's, let's end the there let's end go. the podcast here and let's go do it. Like, what, what's the plan? Nah, there you go. 
I sincerely think that just hearing you just tie that all to growing up in Los Angeles, I think that there's times when people can talk about like where they're from and just think about like, oh, this is where I used to hang out. This is the church I went to, but really thinking about the systems that were at play of where you grew up in and just how layered and layered those impacts are. And of course, like not surfacing, but that was just the surface of, every, like you mentioned, everything that you could have talked about in relation to what all that means for just people in Los Angeles in general. But you can even take that as far as what that means for you and your family, uh, what that means for your loved ones, your friends, my family, like anybody's families that grew up in the city of Los Angeles. Um, and one of the things that you specifically touched on was just the prison system and how the prison system has longitudinal impacts on everything in a person's life and their family's life and their community's life. And just how we talk about uh, those who have been incarcerated and just how dehumanizing that process can be, uh, how the system really sets them up for failure and does nothing to supplement them. And so this was something I originally was going to ask a little later in the podcast, but I think it's a little fitting to bring up here. There was a time in 2021, this is actually June 2021, when you came to San Diego, um, and we were talking, <laughs> don't laugh before I even get to the question. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy that we're on the same page, but um, June 2021, um, we you came to visit at my apartment, and we we're just catching up outside as we do. Uh, at this time, I think you were not working. And I was like, wow, like, I don't think I've ever seen you not working. And I was so happy to hear you not working. And I was just asking, I think something along the lines, like, like, what, like, what's next for you? Like, what's your goal? And you're like, yeah, I want to dismantle the prison system. I was like, Jazzy, yes. And it's not even, it's like, I fully believe you can do it too. It wasn't even that, but it's just the way that you said, I want to dismantle the prison system. Like you're like, oh, you're trying to go to Jack in the Box real quick. Like it's just, it's just light work. It's like, nah, like I want to dismantle the prison system. And I've never in my life heard something as gangsta as that. Because that's how we should be talking about it. That's how these things need to be discussed as something that should be a near reality, a near possibility for all of us when we look at just the systems that have been in place. But I will literally never forget that because it was just like, yeah, I was like, I don't know. I thought maybe you like want to open up a little coffee shop or something. You're like, oh, yeah, I, I want to dismantle the prison system. I'm like, All right, shit, let's, let's do it then. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a thing. It is a thing, but it's just, it was such a you moment. And I mean that in the most loving, like, oh, I know, ad admirable, inspirational way possible. Cause it's like, damn. Like, I think I was having a rough day that day, too. But I was like, you know, if Jazzy can just dismantle the prison system on a Tuesday, I can do whatever. So why don't we just give a little bit more leeway just talking about, like, this mission. Not that this is, like, your core mission in life, but one part of your life to be uh, dedicated to just dismantling, transforming just the prison system in general. Um, when you look back at that conversation we had and how easy it was for you to say that, why do you think it is easy for you to say that that's like a mission of yours in your life? Yeah, a great question. I know we were laughing um, kind of in preparation for this question because we have talked about this thoroughly, um, but you always keep me accountable to that. Um, so thank you for asking again. 
you know, um, that clear realization, um, that clear commitment truthfully was birthed out of being a witness. Mm -hmm. Um, I witnessed family members, loved ones, um, get stripped of their human dignity in that system. I witnessed my brother for nearly 13 years get stripped of his entire childhood, manhood, going into adulthood through that system. And I was 14 years at the, I was 14 years old. He was 16 years old when he got sentenced and trial tried as an adult, even though he was 16 years old, had never had any prior offense. And I won't go into the details of the case, but if you really look at it plainly, the time didn't fit the bit. The, 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 the time didn't fit. Right. It didn't fit. And not only didn't it fit when there was an agreement that was signed into by a judge in writing, it didn't get honored once he turned 18 years old. So not only did he get stripped of his childhood, he got stripped of the legal documents that were signed to give him the opportunity to remain in a juvenile space that he, as he is developing. But no, he gets sent off to prison as soon as he turns 18 years old. He's only, he was only in the, he, he was 16 years old. First off, he was a child. And, you know, our family was not equipped, prepared, or resourced to a degree to be able to hire quality support to advocate on his behalf. And there's reasons and designs of that particular system that keeps a lot of Black people and people who are most vulnerable funneled and continuously cycled into the prison system. And so really what birthed that very clearly in my spirit is because I was a witness. But not only was I a witness, I'm a sister who was impacted by that. I am a sibling who lost a sibling to a system like that. I've, I've cried the tears of what it feels like to watch and witness my brother through bulletproof glass windows and talking for one hour. And it's the, it's the, it's the closest contact that I have with him or being on the phone call for 15 minutes. And as soon as those 15 minutes come up, click. I might've not even got the chance to say, I love you. And that could have been the last time. And it's, it's that experience for nearly 13 years as a sister that I felt I seen, I experienced. The first time I ever really got on a flight in a plane in my yeah. life, my mom took me, I guess, when I was one or two. I don't remember that. Obviously, I was too yeah. young. But the first time I ever remember and I was actually on a, my own ticket, 
I was 19 going on 20, I think, or I was about 20 already. And I was flying to Oklahoma. And I was flying to visit my brother in a prison in the state of Oklahoma. Because over time, he got displaced in private prisons further away from his family in California, in other states. And he happened to find himself in Oklahoma. And I was curious as to is he in is he in an Oklahoma state prison or what's like I don't mm -hmm. I don't understand how they work. No, he's in a California owned prison that happens to be housed in the state of Oklahoma. It's as if the state of California bought real estate in Oklahoma and it's a prison. That's my first time on a flight. My first time ever going wow. on a flight was going to go visit my brother in Oklahoma to visit him in prison. Wow. And think about families that are impacted in that way. Nobody's paying, nobody's giving their family member money for flights. My mom Hotel. is my mom is a single mother trying to do all the stuff that she's trying to do by herself. She has to pay for the flights. She has to pay for the rental car. She has to pay for the hotel. She has to pay the, for the food that's there. She has to pay for the machines visiting him. And he wants a, a hamburger out the vending machine, mm -hmm. soda out the vending machine, a cookie bar or something out the vending. That money, not to mention putting the money on the books, not to mention putting money on the phone. Like those, that's the invisible weight that isn't being seen that also is a part of the dehumanization, the stripping of economic resources in the caging mm -hmm. of people who, who funnel those systems. And it looks different for everybody. And there's, there's degrees of incarceration. There's conditionings of incarceration. Solitary confinement is the most dehumanizing thing it is one of the most dehumanizing, mentally and emotionally torturing and trauma-inducing experience that you can ever put a human being in. You are literally inducing mental illness. And you're already dealing with the people that are already vulnerable. Right. Who already have vulnerable mental states. And then you strip them of their human, their humanness and their humanity. So for all of those reasons, mm -hmm. for all of those reasons is why I say that. And I say that very clearly. And I say that because in 20, when I told you that in 2021, my brother came home in 2020, 13 years later. And he came back wounded. You could literally see the scars. If you listen to his voice, if you hear the way in which he, he he's, he's understanding and conceptualizing the world around him, the way in which he has to navigate his life, there's woundings, there's lifelong bruises. There could have been a better way in which they could have used their resources 
because he was going to be a returning citizen. Just as many of the folks that are currently incarcerated, at some point, they're going to return into our society. And are we setting them up to funnel back into that system? Are we setting them up to be able to get on a pathway so that they can thrive? There's a better use of resources. Absolutely. So for all of those reasons, I do believe in dismantling the way in which we police people, the way in which we engage humans, the way in which we displace families. And that's what it does. It strips people of their humanity. And we should desire, especially if we know that these, this is our community, regardless of how we want to look at it, we live in this country together. Mm-hmm. We may not like what everybody believes. We may not agree what everybody has to say. We may not agree how everybody vote. We may not agree of how everybody worship. But we live in this society together, whether we want to or not. We are. And we're responsible for the laws and the rules in the community agreements to an extent that we create. And some of those rules benefit others more than other than 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 another group. We know that plain and simple. I don't got to break it down. Right. And for again, all of those reasons, there should be a, a stronger resolve to invest those kind of resources into what does community safety actually look like. Mm-hmm. What does meeting the basic needs of citizens look like? What is what if we're seeing mental health or substance dependence and self-medication, how do we ensure we provide adequate mental health support to get them on a pathway of healthier outcomes? Those are the resources that need to be invested in, not prison systems. Mm. You are masking social issues that need to be addressed. And for all of those reasons, there needs to be a higher agreement that that system needs to be dismantled because we all pay our taxes. And for at least those who do know that that's a part of how your money is being used. Right. When I was at UCSD, I was advocating on behalf of my brother because here I am at UC San Diego, one of the top universities in the state of California in the UC system, all of the things, top tier research institution. And it's 1.3% black students that are at that's at that institution. But over 45%, almost 50% of the prison system was filled, is filled with black people, is filled with my brother, is filled with your brother. And after I graduated from UCSD, I was a part of an organization called the African Black Coalition. And students discovered that that our institution, our UC system, our resources, our tuition money was being privately invested into private prison systems Mm -hmm. in the state of California. And not only that, is invested in banks who invest in private prisons, that our money our tuition, a percentage of my tuition is going into keeping my brother encaged. It's a real fucked up loop when you really start to unpack all of that. Right. And that's why advocacy is so important. 
Because what what came out of that was the 30 the 30 million dollars that the UC system was investing into private prisons directly they divested that $30 million out of the prison system. And that's because black students advocated on behalf of that particular issue. And not only that, $450 million was divested out of the bank that they were directly investing in as well that was invested in private prisons. That's the power of belief. That's the power of how we dismantle things. And yes, it's not going to happen overnight, but it is being able to recognize how we ourselves also play a role in the main in the maintenance of that. And we may not always see it and we may not always connect dots. But there is a dot to connect. And so it's something that I I I I pray this prayer seriously because. We have to begin to realize that we are literally stripping the humanity out of people. We are literally stripping the human spirit out of people when we could use those resources in a better way. And there's a clear connection between what we see in terms of enslavement of black bodies in this country and engagement of black bodies in this country. There is a correlation. So for all of those reasons, yet again, that's why that is important to me. That's why I hope it matters to more people. Yeah, and I just want to, a few things, well, I mean, this is like 50 billion things I could expand upon in what you just said, but. Uh, first, I wanted to emphasize for the listeners, because as you were speaking, I was like, want to make sure folks know when we were laughing about like, oh, just dismantle the prison system as just something small at the beginning. That's more so just I feel like you and I's dynamic. Nothing is funny about anything that was just stated. Uh, so I just want to make that clear for the listeners that that's more so just knowing Jaslyn and all the passion that you have for uh, just everything that she just mentioned, I don't even feel, it doesn't feel right to kind of summarize everything you said in just a word, uh, but just that passion, it was just funny. I was like, dang, Jazzy, like you really have the power, you have the plan, you have the vision. And so you could just say it like, yeah, like I want my egg scramble, like this massive prison system. Um, so I just want to emphasize that one for the listeners. Uh, but two, I think that anyone listening to this podcast, I hope that you really just take the time to sit with yourself and just check in on just how you feel just hearing all of that. Cause I think that there's a lot of listeners who this might be the first time hearing about just the prison system in that way. And for some, it might be the 15th time they're hearing this and just thinking about all the different ways that we as a society invest into these prison systems and just how much power there is in community and activism work to be able to make a difference. Um, one specific thing I wanted to highlight that was brought up in a number of different ways in what you just stated was something that is, I think, I'm not going to say like the core foundational piece to our friendship, but something that was very important and impactful for me uh, when I first started getting to know you more was that you were the first person, I don't know if I ever even told you this like directly, but you were the first person that I just knew got it because it was like, okay, you're Black, you're from Los Angeles, your brother is in prison while you're learning about the prison system in a new way and learning about just all the different ways that 
just society is meant for that to be your current situation. And as some of the listeners know, my brother, as you mentioned, was also in prison when I was in college and he was there for seven years and nine months. And like, yes, people like we talked about prison very theoretically in a lot of classes and a lot of discussions. But at the end of the day, I was like, nah, like this is this is reality. Like this is something I'm going home to after we have this discussion. This is something that I'm actively experiencing. And I think that something as quote unquote little as what you mentioned about the 15 minute phone call and how after 15 minutes that ends and how after that 15 minutes is some automated voice reminding you that like, hey, you're on the phone with a prisoner. Uh, this call has 13 minutes, 23 seconds remaining. Like it's just that yeah, ever, pre <laughs> yeah, it's being recorded. It's that ever present reminder is like, yeah, this isn't this isn't natural. This isn't humane. Uh, you mentioned like the vending machines and going to visit. Even the process of going to visit somebody who is incarcerated, they damn near they damn near throw you in jail just to go talk to somebody that's in prison as well. Um, and I think that all those different things are very human, very real experiences for a younger sister, for a younger brother. And I think that once I learned more about your story, I was like, oh, you get it. Like, I think that's what made it really easy to talk to you in college. It was like, nah, like, not that other people didn't get it at UCSD, but I was like, nah, like, you get what's important to me right now. You understand what it's like to be at this PWI, uh, which, as you mentioned, was at 1.3% Black at the time, learning about the prison industrial complex. You have the Trayvon Martin situation going on. You have all these different things going on. You're learning about all this. You're learning about Blackness. You're learning about the prison system, divestment, all that. And then it's like, damn, now I have language to describe what I was already experiencing. Right. And so I one, just wanted to affirm that part of our, excuse me, that part of our relationship, because I feel like that's such a tender part of our connection, because I think that there was just a number of times where just checking in about stuff like that and being able to genuinely talk about just how complex it is. Because even if it wasn't like, oh, I don't know how I'm feeling right now, but it's just heavy or it's just need someone who I can relate to. And I will never, ever forget when I got to meet your brother for the first time and just how much that just warm my heart because I'm like, man, like you don't even. I, I don't know. I was. I want to run up and give him a hug. Like, man, bro. Like, I'm. I'm. Because I, I. That was my brother coming home. I know home you. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, like nah. Like this. Like, yeah. welcome. Welcome home, like, my dog. Like, hey, my brother. Like, hey, family. Like. Yeah. Like, let's like the grill, dog. Like, just something. Like, just so happy that because it's just like it's just a, he's coming out the car. To, oh, this is Kyler, but it's like nah. Like this is this is so much more than this moment. And yeah. we all know them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, when I think about my brother, um, shout out to Kirkland. Shout out to Kirkland, um, my big brother, my best friend, one of my first mentors. Um, one, of, one of the first people that I admired and desired to be like. Um, he taught me, I mean, he teaches me so much still to this day. Um, but as a kid, he taught me a lot. And, um, you know, I always, I always wanted him to know that he wasn't forgotten. Mm. I always wanted to, I, I, you know, the way our, our prison system is designed because it strips people of their, their human, their humanness. It in some ways forces the family to 
also engage and treat them and think of them in that same manner. It's, it's kind of psychological in a sense of how that happens, but it does. And then that increases a sense of loneliness and forgottenness within prisoners, um, those who are finding themselves in cage for many reasons. Um, and this is not a moral, right, wrong kind right. of conversation. You know, I mean, you know, there level of community safety has to be a value no matter what. Um, but I'm talking specifically systemic, mm-hmm. designed systemically, not totally the actions of those who do wrong. Um, and Kirkland, you know, he just, I'm grateful for his teaching. I'm grateful for his testimony, nevertheless. And, um, you know, he's walking this journey back home as a returning citizen. And um, it has been, it hasn't been an easy journey by no means. Um, But I trust that. And, you know, my greatest hope for my brother is that um, he trusts in his baby steps. He's able to be gentle with himself. um, That he also find, um, it's hard to ask a man to be patient when You've been patiently waiting to get home for so many years, but also to be patient with his journey as he um, reacclimate himself to a whole new world, a, a world that he's been grossly underdeveloped, under, underdeveloped for, that he hasn't been um, properly prepared for, but by design. So I just I just wanted to shout him out and. Hope that he knows that he is loved, um, that he's appreciated, and he's admired. Um, so I love you, Kirk. <laughs> wow, and this is the beginning of the podcast. I feel all fuzzy inside and whatnot. <laughs> hey, this—I mean, this—this this is exactly how I expected this podcast to go. Honestly, like, and in all, all honesty, as you were as speaking about like your mission to dismantle the prison system forgot we were on a podcast for me because like I said this is also just how we if we were just on zoom this is the exact conversation we would be having like I'd give less context when I'm asking you questions but this would be the exact conversation so I'm just happy that we're able to have this platform to be able to speak freely about this experience too because uh, in reality a lot of people that we mutually know there's a lot of people in community who might have shared experiences and maybe they don't have someone who they can talk to uh, that understands parts of what it's like. I always hesitate to say that anyone understands fully what something is like, but I just understands the complexities that are at play when you have a loved one who has been incarcerated. Uh, So thank you so much for just the vulnerability in that. And obviously uh, you're someone who is more than comfortable sharing their story. Like you've given keynotes, you've done webinars, but I think every time we owe it to ourselves to share gratitude for that being vulnerable because you didn't have to share any of that. You could have left your entire mission at a more disconnected, non-personal manner. But I think being able to share that part of yourself is so, so impactful. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's easy talking to you. (laughs) This is us. This is us us on a daily. So um, it's a treat to all the listeners. to get a little insight of the daily random conversations that Kyler and I have ever really had. Um, um, yeah, this is, this is, which is why we can talk the way that we, we do. And I think why the questions, um, 
you know, you, you know, my heart, you have, we've been a part of each other's journeys. And so um, it's easy. It's easy. It's easy. easy. And don't worry, y'all. I'm also, I'm gonna get on her head a bit in the podcast too. It ain't gonna be all, all, <laughs> all butterflies, rainbows, and mangoes. <laughs> That's a good one. We started with the mangoes. Can't forget the mangoes. <laughs> Can't forget the mangoes. Um, so let's rewind a little bit more. Rewind, fast forward. I don't know what button we pressed on the remote. I would just ask you the question. Uh, but how did you end up at UCSD? And I don't know if this is even a, a question I've ever asked you before. So I'm very curious just to hear about what that journey was like coming from Los Angeles and eventually ending up at UC San Diego. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, very interesting. Um, when I was at, so I moved to the Valley after my brother had passed. Uh, my mom wanted just a different environment. Um, went to Birmingham High School. And while I was there, um, I always knew I was going to, I wanted to go to school, but, you know, that was, I didn't know, I'm a first generation college student. I'm the first of my siblings to graduate from high school to get a undergrad bachelor. I got two bachelor's degrees, a master's degrees. And I don't say that to brag about it, but it's the thing that gave me light on on this journey. And so how I ended up at UCSD, um, interestingly enough, I got waitlisted at UCSD and I wasn't going to go. I was going to go, where was I going to go? Um, was it Merced? Merced, he was gonna order. You see Merced? I might, I might have, cause I, cause I, um, I might have actually. Wow. I think so. I know because I, what was waitlisted to San Diego? Oh no, 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 Santa Barbara. I got accepted mm. to Santa Barbara. I got accepted to Merced. I didn't get accepted to UCLA, and I was waitlisted for UCSD. Those are the only UCs that I applied for. Oh, and then, um, yeah. Those, those are the ones that I applied for. Um, and then some of the CSUs I applied for too. Um, and then I filled out the waitlist process and I ended up getting off the waitlist. And I was like, well, I guess I meant to go to San Diego because I was actually um, my first choice. It was either UCLA or UC San Diego. Mm -hmm. And I went with UCSD, which I was grateful for, even though UCSD at the time didn't have the best rap. Right. <laughs> um after the Compton cookout, you know, there was a there was a clear narrative that UCSD wasn't a a welcoming space for black students. Um but you know what was most inspiring about going to UCSD was was the students in there the way in which they organized their power. How they how they turned their pain and grief and fear and all the things that they were navigating emotionally at UCSD, they turned it into a collective voice for power. And they they demanded that the that UCSD, the institution, became responsible for the kind of environment that they create and invest in when it came to black students in their needs and their resources. And so that's what really inspired me to go to UCSD. Um, got involved it, you know, in BSU. And it was, it really was birthed out of um, wanting to be in community, mm -hmm. you know, 
when we say it was 1.3% of black students at UCSD, we mean 1.3%. It was 30,000 students at UCSD. That includes grad school, the medical school, undergrad. And of that was maybe four or 500 students, 500 students or so that were black walking around that campus in some form or fashion, which means that on a regular day basis, I could be in any of my classes with 300 people and not see a not see not one black person. Um, and there's something very isolating about that experience. Very isolating, very lonely. And so UCSD's Black Student Union was a saving grace for many reasons. Um, and I'm grateful that I came to UCSD because it laid the foundation for what leadership is to me and what it means to me. Um, there's some great things in which I learned and there were some habits that I had to let go of or, you know, as well as mm. I, I'm a leader at UCSD. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, it's been a learning pro process, but I'm grateful for it. Um, but UCSD opened, opened my eyes in so many ways. It, um, it challenged me. It challenged my consciousness. It challenged my social awareness, but even more so, it challenged my self-awareness of who I am. How do I contextualize who I am in this world? How do I contextualize who I am in this in at this institution, which is in some ways was a microcosm of the larger of our larger society. And the thing that um, grounded all of us nurtured all of us in many ways. And not to say this was every Black student experience. I know for me it was. Um, the Black Student Union was a space where I felt seen. Mm -hmm. I felt heard and I felt like I belong. So that's also what kept me and retained me at UCSD. <laughs> so that was kind of my journey to UCSD. Um, a lot of people don't know, oftentimes don't know that I like I was waitlisted. Um, and so it's interesting how things are like when they're meant to be, I guess they're meant to be. Um, and so my journey, I was meant to go to UCSD and, you know, a little brag on myself. And I graduated with the most outstanding student. I was the most outstanding student in my entire graduating class. And the reason why was because not just because of my, my academics, uh, which that contributed to it, but I was also committed to being a student leader. Um, I was committed to leaving UCSD better than how I found it. Um, and I hope I did. You know, I look back and there's a bunch of stuff that I know that didn't exist when I was a student that currently exists at UCSD, such as Black housing. So shout out to the RAs of Black housing, all of the student organizers who made that happen. Shout out to Kyler sitting at the... VC EDI meetings and Bree and Alexis and all of BSU at that time um, that were also really committed to ensuring that UCSD felt like a safer space for Black students to thrive. So now goes into the part of the podcast where I go in your head a little bit and let you brag a little bit about yourself a little bit more because I you you did an okay job at talking about your UCSD impact. Um, I think UCSD is lucky as hell that they got you after waitlisting you. I think that they needed you. UCSD Thank absolutely, you. they absolutely needed you. 
And I don't think it could ever go overstated how much of an impact you had on campus, not only for the tangible work that you did for uh, Black students to come and Black students who are currently at UC San Diego, uh, what you did to help retain the Black students who were there during your time at BSU, uh, all the selfless work that you did as the queendom of BSU. Um, there's a reason why when you became chair, we started hailing you as the queen of the Blacks at UC San Diego. And for the listeners, I'm not exaggerating whatsoever. There would literally be times Jazzy would walk into a BSU meeting and we would get down one knee, head bowed, all oh. hail Queen Jazlyn, <laughs> hip, hip. I still to this day. <laughs> am bashful about that um it's very humbling um and you know more often than not I was trying to get y'all up <laughs> I was like it's time to get up please do not I remember y'all had a whole plan at the ABC conference that year I'm like oh no <laughs> we have to let you know though because I feel like too often I feel like especially Black women leaders too, like y'all don't get the credit that y'all deserve. Um, and it was a very extraed out, exaggerated way to go about it and completely unnecessary. But at the same time, like, I think that we had to make BSU goofy sometimes. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Like, I think that a lot of the work that we did with BSU, a lot of work that we did in and for community, a lot of that was very taxing. A lot of it consisted of, uh, long nights. Um, I'll never forget the, see, Dr. King had the I had a dream speech. Jazzy had the I had a midterm speech. <laughs> I, knew, I knew, I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> like, why'd you bring up the midterm speech? Oh my God. <laughs> I'm telling you, because I just, I'm a podcaster, Jazzy. I told you, you meet in podcast, Kyler, today, and I just need to paint the picture on just what it means to be a selfless leader in community. And I'm not even saying that leadership is supposed to look a certain way, but I think looking back on my my time uh, being voluntold to be on BSU board uh, and just hey. thinking about how much of ourselves we put into being leaders in the community and just really exemplifying like, nah, like, oh, we're doing this, we're doing this thing. Kind of similar to the prison thing. like. We gonna talk about dismantling prison systems, or we gonna dismantle the fucking prison system? With okay. BSU, is like, are we retaining black students, or are we retaining black students? Because if we're really working towards retaining black students, we might not get that much sleep tonight. We might be hungry this evening, but we gonna be in this meeting. I might, there might be a basketball game on right now, but damn it, it's it's high school conference, okay? I'm gonna get this damn workshop. <laughs> I ain't, I'm gonna talk a lot of shit after it and be like, man. Y'all know I missed the Laker game for this shit. Oh, goodness. I, I know. And you, you in particular, you were, that's, that's when you got into your Kyler work era. You were, it was always there, which is why you were able to utilize it the way that you did. But you were top tier. You were, you were, you were, you were top tier. Um, in your work ethic and in your leadership at that time. And it. it was it was an honor. It was an honor to work with you. 
Uh, I know I've all told you, but I'm glad that you said yes. <laughs> but, that year wouldn't have been. Yeah, it would it wouldn't have been. But I want to make sure that we're very clear with the listeners. So they're all the way behind the curtain. So I want you to expand a little bit about what I mean when I say I was well and told for BSU. Uh, you can allude to Kyle working there if you want to, but also I need a a recap of that. I have the mid I have a midterm speech. It like I'm saying I have a midterm speech because I'm being stupid, but that's how I remember it. Like in my head, same thing. They got the picture of Dr. King like giving his eye a dream speech. In my head, Jazzy is like in front of all the black people at UCSD. It's like I have a midterm. So can you can you paint the picture fully for our wonderful listeners? Yes, let me try to see if I can paint the picture well. Um, saying this is what back in 2014. Yeah. 2014 was the year of the protest. Damn right it, it was. It was it was all it was the all black everything year. <laughs> we had so many sit-ins and protests and Library library walk takeovers and classroom takeover. We were doing a they lot of tired of our black ass. They for sure. They was like, "What is, what is, what is happening here?" What y'all they mad about people. now? Right. What you, what, what y'all mad about now? No, seriously. And we were met with so much apathy on that campus. Um, most people are like. Mike Brown, who? Who's a Mike Brown? Are you talking about my friend Mike Brown? Like, no. Ferguson, where is that? What's huh? And you know, first off, um, I'll set this up saying, you know, when I walked into leadership for BSU as chair, I was nervous. Mm. I was nervous. I questioned if I had what it took to be the leader of Black issues that were impacting Black students on our campus. Um, I was questioning if I was well-equipped. I was comparing myself to the other leaders that I had admired, that had mentored me, that were my bigs, the Grants, the Elisas, the Fanons. Um, and, you know, when I walked into that position, I know that, and if you know me personally, you know, when I'm committed to something, I'm going to see it through. It might be interesting how I get there. <laughs> Y'all might be like, Jocelyn, um, Yeah, you know, I must wear all the details of the nuances of the things, but Kyler is not exaggerating. We would be up late. After we after after we got done with the GBM, we have another meeting. <laughs> meeting after the meeting. We just had a board meeting, just had a GBM with all of our members with general body meeting for BSU. And then right after that, we organizing the next thing. And then checking in, looking around, like, wait, did you eat? Have you eaten today? Did you sleep? What time your day starts tomorrow? Eight o'clock? It's two o'clock in the morning. Like, those are the habits that I had to learn how to shift so that I can function well, not just do the work, but do the, do the work well and function well. 
Um, my senior year of college, when I was chair of BSU, again, like I said, we protested a lot, and Kyla always brings up the midterm speech. Um, <clears throat> and most people, they see me as, you know, the person that was the student leader or the person that does the speech or things like that. If you felt, if you, if you felt what I felt those days, especially as a, as a student organizer, as a student leader, just now finding my voice, but having all this fight, all this conviction in my heart, don't always have the right words. It felt like, but one day um, we was protesting, um, I think the national day against police, police brutality. Mm -hmm. And there was a line of folks that were kind of blocking library walk. If you know UCSD, you know what I'm referencing, but it's a very popular area at UCSD where there's mo there's the highest foot track traffic of students. Uh, so it's a pretty visible open place um, in kind of central central part of the campus. And so, um, you know, people have signs protesting, different speakers are going up and speaking. And, you know, I was in a moment, I, um, we have been organizing the night before and it's my turn to go up and speak. And, you know, I spoke, um, advocated on behalf of black students needs, um, talked about the increases in our tuition yet our money is being funneled into keeping my brother incarcerated, um, and other black and brown bodies in that same cycle yet. There's this belief for this campaign to increase um, black students at the at the institution. So all those things were things that I was talking about very passionately. My voice might have was cracking and shaking, but I was I I I will never forget the um, just the conviction in my heart. Um, and then at the end of the speech, I was like, "Hey, I shouldn't be out here. I should be." Like all the other students, go you know, walking, grabbing Jamba Juice, you know, nice, peaceful, sunny day. I should just be like, okay, I got 15 minutes in my class. Let me go look at the trees and, you know, <laughs> the birds and the bees. No, I'm in all black. Half of the black student membership was on the library walk with us. And that happened to be the day that I have a calculus midterm. <laughs> cold work I literally have a calculus midterm two to three minutes before I finished my speech and the only reason why I left library walk that day is because I had a midterm I should be worried about my midterm no I'm I'm on library walk advocating for black students, advocating for people who are incarcerated, advocating for students across the state of California to not have tuition hikes and increases. And I should be at a I should be at school to study and prepare for my calculus midterm, but I wasn't. Right. That's the that's the conundrum of being black in higher education. It's like, especially when you really zoom out a little bit, we going to school in La Jolla, California. The beach is right there. It's always like it between 65 to 75 degrees. It's never that, that cold. It's not going to be that, that hot. There's a lot of things to do in campus in the area. And what do we decide to do? 
fight the power. Fight the power. <laughs> but that's, like you mentioned, that's part of retention. Like, I think that at the time, of course, we all envision a future UC San Diego where students could choose whether or not they want to be activists. But for us, it was important for us, whether or not we were that, I mean, no one comes to college to be Malcolm X, no matter how much our family members think that we was on our Malcolm X grind. Right. Um, but there was a collective purpose, there was a collective calling and uh, just a collective movement to be able to do that for community with community. So um, I joke about that, I haven't been but I think that's just an, just an example of Black leadership and just how, when it came to like really like being with it, like it was like, nah, like these are the sacrifices that are to be made. And and I'm not even gonna lie, especially when I was working at the BRC, the Black Research Center at UCSD, sometimes I would retell some of those stories to people, like not necessarily naming specific people. It's like, yeah, like when students are like, oh, but I have a midterm next week. I'm like, yeah, we had midterms too. And it's not even <laughs> like, yes, go, go get your good grades and do your thing. But do know that, yeah, sometimes sacrifices are made. And that's just the nature of uh, where we find ourselves. Um, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, yes, agree. I mean, that's a part of leadership development and and really building the qualities and characteristics of becoming a leader is there's a, there's a level of sacrifice, um, but there's a balancing act. I think that that was the part that I didn't know mm -hmm. when I was in college. The having access and knowledge to the tools that it helps to maintain balance. And it's not you're going to find perfect balance ever. But to have the wisdom and the discernment to know when you you screw you screw like you tilt into the left a little bit too far to where you're going to knock yourself out, off way far off of balance. And mm -hmm. so always finding a way to aim for that center part, at least as best as you can. What a bar. Just, just always coming with the with the words of wisdom. Um, yeah, see, it's just every, every time I talk, there's some sentence you say, I'm just like, man, I need to write that down. Like, I need to put that on a mirror somewhere. Maybe in the book. We gonna get to the book. <laughs> <laughs>